You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. The Romanian playwright Eugene Ionesco wrote, Woe betide the man who refuses to conform. Indeed, as we will see this morning, it is a hard thing to stand outside of the prevailing winds and patterns of our culture. It's hard to take the narrow path that leads to life when everyone else seems to be heading in the opposite direction. And yet this is what the Christian is called to do. And how we are to survive as strangers in a strange land. How we are to be uh, able to resist being conformed to the rebellious world system that's all around us. That's what we're going to examine this morning as we begin our look at the book of Daniel. Today we'll be in Daniel chapter 1. And the big idea that we're going to see today is that the Lord sustains his people in their exile. We're going to see that across five points this morning. First, we'll see that God's people are in exile. Second, we'll see that the rebellious world system wants to remake God's exiled people. Third, we'll see that in exile, God's people must remember where their true allegiance lies. Fourth, we'll see that God sustains and rewards his faithful people in exile. And fifth, we'll see that God brings his people through their exile. All right, well, let's start with our first point, which is that God's people are in exile. Begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, last week we looked at the historical events that ultimately led to the destruction of the sinful kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And we saw that the real decline of Judah, the final years of Judah, were tied up with three wars that Judah fought with the superpower of its day, Babylon, between 605 and 586 BC. And in each of these three wars, Babylon prevailed, and after each victory, the Babylonians took a number of Jews away from the Promised Land as their slaves. Now, the book of Daniel begins after the first of these wars, in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar has just become the dominant king in the ancient world after defeating the Egyptians at the famous battle of Carchemish. And immediately afterwards, Nebuchadnezzar moves against the Jews who were at this time a puppet kingdom of Egypt. Daniel 1-2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, And Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar defeats the Jews, but he doesn't yet destroy Jerusalem or depose the king. He is content to have taught the Jews a lesson about who the new big dog in the region is, and he leaves, taking some plunder with him. Some of the plunder were pieces of sacred... uh, um, material and gear used in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, consecrated bowls and jugs and plates. 
And Nebuchadnezzar put these objects in the treasury of one of Babylon's pagan temples, probably the temple of Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonian religion. And by putting these objects in the temple of Marduk, the Babylonians are saying that Marduk has defeated the Lord. In the same way, the Babylonians imagine that they have defeated the Jews because of their own glorious might and power. But both of these conclusions are totally incorrect, although it's not surprising that the Babylonians drew them, because the Babylonians were insanely arrogant. In the prophecy of Habakkuk, chapter 1, we read God saying that at kings the Babylonians scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Babylonians are addicted to their own glory. And so, of course, they think that uh, their God is the greatest and that their strength is the mightiest. But the truth is, Marduk is not stronger than the living God. And Babylon did not defeat God's chosen people simply because they were strong. Rather, Babylon is a tool in the Lord's hand. They are a whip, a rod of chastisement, with which God meant to punish his unrepentantly sinful people, along with other sinful nations in the ancient Near East. And when Yahweh's purposes for Babylon were fulfilled, Babylon would be destroyed as well. But Babylon at this time thought that they were glorious and that their idol was glorious, and so they brought this plunder to his temple. More than that, the Babylonians also took some of the people of Jerusalem back to Babylon as captives. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Well, for the first time now, a group of Jews is taken captive and deported to Babylon. This would not be the last time that this would occur. Now, some, if not all, of these initial captives were the best and the brightest of Judah. They were the future of the nation, from the royal family and the nobility. Eventually, they would have become the nation's leaders. They were at this time only youths. The term can mean young men, perhaps 14 or 15 years old. Old enough to have demonstrated their intellectual abilities and young enough to still be able to be trained in the Babylonian way of thinking and doing things. And these young men were to be put to the king's service. Nebuchadnezzar apparently meant to build a court from the best and brightest of all the world. And so he took the most promising young people from Judah and probably from the other nations that he conquered to train them so that they would serve him and his empire well as high officials. And the people that were selected were physically impeccable and intellectually outstanding. You know, nowadays there's a joke that you can't have everything. You can have looks or you can have smarts, but not both. But in antiquity, it was thought that the beautiful people were the brainiacs as well. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be surrounded with the smartest and the best looking. And so Nebuchadnezzar set his chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, to bring these sorts of Jewish nobles to his palace. And in so doing, a prophecy which Isaiah had given to King Hezekiah several years earlier was fulfilled. 
Isaiah 39, 7. Isaiah said, Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And that's what happened. Some Jews were taken to Babylon in exile. And as we'll see in a moment, the central figures of this book, Daniel and his friends, are some of these initial captives. So throughout this study, we're going to be closely following the lives of some of the people of God who have been taken as exiles. And this will be a profitable study for us. Because just like Daniel and his friends, we today who are believers in Jesus Christ are exiles. Now, the reason for our exile is different. The Jews were taken into exile as a judgment from God upon their nation. In Leviticus 26, God warned that if you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, I will scatter you among the nations. Exile was a judgment that God brought upon his unrepentantly rebellious nation. But believers in Jesus Christ are exiles, not because we're under God's judgment, but rather as a result of our salvation. We saw last week in 1 Peter 1 that believers are spoken of as elect exiles. Friends, if you have trusted Christ, you are in exile. This world is no longer your home. Now, you're not an exile like the Jews in Daniel. You have not lost your home. But rather, you are an exile like Abraham, who Hebrews 11 says, looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You're an exile, believing friend, because your true home, the new Jerusalem, has not yet arrived. But though you have not yet seen new Jerusalem, it is your true home. For the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1 that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. Friends, if we have come to Christ, we are exiles. We presently live outside our true home. And in that, we are like these young men in Daniel 1. And so as we read about what happened to them, we can learn principles that apply to how we should live as exiles and that teach us how we should expect God to interact with us in our period of exile in this world today. But before we begin to see that, we first must learn another lesson, a lesson that we see in our second big point today, which is that the rebellious world system wants to remake God's exiled people. All right, so young Jewish nobles have been taken as exiles to serve as officials in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, including Daniel and his friends. And these young people were selected by Ashpenaz, the king's chief eunuch. Now, Ashpenaz had a position of high trust. He was the head servant of Nebuchadnezzar's palace as the chief eunuch. He would make sure that the palace operated as it should and that it was properly staffed. And so he was in charge of turning these captives into effective servants of Nebuchadnezzar and effective officials of the Babylonian Empire. And that began with giving these captives a new education. And we see that in Daniel 1.4, that he was to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, I need to say a bit about this term Chaldean, which we find often in the Bible in connection with the Babylonian Empire. Babylon is a city the Chaldeans were a tribe of people who at this time controlled the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was ethnically a Chaldean, but he reigned from Babylon, so he was the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar intends for his empire to reflect not only the glory of the ancient city of Babylon, but also his own native culture. And so the Jewish exiles are to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. 
Chaldean language is called Akkadian, and it was written in a system called cuneiform. It's not an easy language. It would take years to learn, which is why the second part of verse 5 says they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. They could serve Nebuchadnezzar only after completing this rigorous course of study, which included learning this difficult language and also learning the key writings in that language, the writings of the Chaldeans. And these writings would concern political philosophy as well as religion and superstition. See, Chaldean culture was very into astrology and interpreting omens. We'll see later in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar's royal court contained magicians and sorcerers. This would have been part of what the Jewish youths would have been expected to learn about. And so Ashpenaz teaches them Chaldean language and wisdom. More than that, Ashpenaz is to take charge of these young Jews' physical welfare. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So these young men were to be very well taken care of. You know, the king of the greatest empire on earth isn't eating poorly. He's eating lavishly. He's having a three Michelin star meal every night. And he would have also had the very best wine. And this high quality food and wine was shared with these young men who were being trained to become Nebuchadnezzar's servants and officials. These exiles are living in luxury. There is to be no impediment to their gaining what they need to serve Nebuchadnezzar well. But that's not all. These young men are also given new names. And we talked about renaming last week. We saw last week that God renamed Abram to Abraham, and that he renamed Jacob to Israel. We also saw that some of the ancient Near Eastern kings renamed their underlings. Giving someone a new name is the prerogative of a lord over his subjects. And here the Babylonian Empire exercises lordship over these Jewish youths and gives each of them a new name. Names intending to break their connection to their former lives and culture and faith. Names intending to bring them into a new life and culture and faith. And it's here in verse 6 that we finally meet the men who are the central figures of this book. Among these, the Jewish exiles, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now the names of these four men had religious significance in Hebrew. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yah is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yah has helped. And these names reflect the true God and his faithful relationship with his covenant people. But the Babylonians intend to make these men forget about the true God and forget about the covenant people and to turn them into Babylonians. And so Ashpenaz rechristens these men, Daniel 1.7. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar may be related to the name Bel, another name of the Babylonian god Marduk. And the name also means save his life. It's like a prayer. Uh, Daniel 1.7 continues. Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Meshach. We're not quite sure what these names meant, but their last syllable may also be connected to Marduk. Daniel 1.7, and Azariah he called Abednego. This name probably means servant of Nebo, who was another major deity in the Babylonian religion. So what do we see in these verses? 
Well, the Babylonians have a strategy to take these Jewish exiles and make them into Babylonians, to give them new names, in other words, to give them new identities, to educate them in the wisdom of the Chaldeans, and to give them a life of luxury. Now, what should we take from this? Well, friends, this is how the world system works. The world is an organized system of rebellion against God. And every culture and every nation are part of the world system. And every part of the world system, every nation and every culture and every institution within every nation and culture exist to propagate and advance rebellion against God. And the world system recognizes that believers in Jesus are exiles, that we are not native to this world, that we belong elsewhere. And more than that, the world system sees us as foreign invaders and as a threat. Because after all, the Lord has left us here so that we can proclaim the gospel to sinners. That we can win the lost, win those who are ensnared by the world and help them to, to uh, come to Christ and have a new destiny. So the world system doesn't like that. The world system wants to drive us and to compel us to abandon our identity as belonging to Jesus as citizens of heaven. The world wants us Christians to conform to its rebellion. As Phillips famously put it, the world means to squeeze us into its mold. And how does this work? Well, like with Daniel and his friends, the world system wants to give us a new identity. We see this clearly in contemporary America. There is a huge emphasis today on identity, on how we define ourselves. How Americans talk about identity has changed a lot in the last 40 years. For much of the 20th century, if you were introduced to someone new, one of the first things you would ask that person is, what do you do? What, what is your job? Our identity was conceived of primarily as being related to our occupation. A subsequent questions might ask about family life or our hobbies. That's how people thought about identity, I think, in most of the 20th century, as a, as a reflection of where we invested our time, our marital status, our parenthood, our work, our free time. But then beginning in the 1970s, a new wave of thought emerged called identity politics. And this tried to redefine people differently. Postmodern philosophy taught that there were more foundational and defining issues than our jobs and our families. Issues like our race or our sex. And the idea was basically that our race and our sex truly define who we are. So if you're a white male, you're one sort of a person. And if you're a black female, you're another sort of a person. And you really only have commonality with people who share these racial and sexual characteristics with you. That was the theory of identity politics. And this is the predominant way that our culture talks about identity today. In recent times, new axes of identity have developed. Now sexual orientation is a big part of identity politics. And more recently, the idea of people choosing their own genders. I tell you that you know what this looks like if you've ever talked seriously with a homosexual person about uh, their lifestyle. They're likely to tell you plainly, this is who I am. That's a claim about identity, this is who I am. It's a tragic claim that my life and my being is defined by my sexual sin. But this sort of way of thinking about identity comes from identity politics. Similarly today, I would tell you that I think political party affiliation has become yet another sort of identity grouping. And so our society today groups people based on these kind of characteristics. And it assumes that only those who share our racial or our sexual or our political characteristics are meaningfully similar to us. 
And this reflects the rebellion of the world system because it divides. Galatians 5 tells us that dissension and rivalry are sins of the flesh. And this has allowed for a unique sort of attack on the people of God. Let me explain. If you know Jesus Christ, that should be the central and defining feature of your life. Our knowledge of Christ and our faith should govern our thoughts and direct our actions above all else. But the world wants to marginalize that. It wants us to see ourselves not primarily as believers, but rather as something else. So it wants us to say, well, I'm not a Christian first, I'm a woman. And so what really matters to me are women's issues. Or I'm not a Christian first, I'm Hispanic. And so what should define me are racial issues. Or I'm not a Christian first, I'm a Republican. And so what should define me is my political advocacy. Or even in the old way of thinking, I'm not a Christian first, I'm an accountant. Or my job is first, or my family is first. The world wants to redefine us, believing friends. It wants us to see anything as first other than Jesus. It wants us to see our relationship to Jesus as a secondary, marginal matter. It wants us to put any other category first and to follow that category rather than to follow Jesus. It wants us to forget who we are in Christ. More than that, it wants to break the fellowship of local churches by atomizing us into smaller groups by introducing racial or political or gender division into the church. Because this whole think way of thinking denies that we can ever have fellowship with anybody who's different than us. Friends, don't buy into this. Don't let the world redefine you. Remember who you really are, that you are in Christ if you're a believer and you have fellowship with all other believers. That is your identity. Second, the world system attacks God's people in exile by trying to indoctrinate us into its worldview. Every institution within the world system exists to propagate and advance rebellion against God. In Daniel 1, we see it in terms of education. Daniel and his friends are forced into an educational system that teaches things which are contrary to their faith, idolatry and magic and superstition. In the same way, the institutions of our culture seek to educate and indoctrinate us into the values, attitudes, and methods of this rebellious world. We see this fairly clearly in education today. Now, public schools often get beaten up in churches, and a lot of positive things about public schools are often ignored. Uh, there are public schools which have Christian administrators and Christian teachers which are open to the gospel. Public schools are a great mission field for the gospel. And our church has had positive relationships with public schools in the past. So I'm not just going to bash public schools. But no matter how godly administrators and teachers can be, the state-sanctioned curriculum taught in public education teaches things that are contrary to the Christian faith. Science classes scoff at the doctrine of creation while teaching that somehow existence spontaneously arose from nothingness and life spontaneously arose from non-life. Like, that's supposed to be serious. Moreover, I remember in my own high school English class being uh, forced to read the novels of James Joyce. This is pretty filthy stuff. Or sitting through lectures trying to encourage us to embrace every manner of deviance and threatening us with penalties for being intolerant. Schools often wind up indoctrinating kids into the rebellious values, attitudes, and methods of our culture. Well, so does the government. Think about the way the government talks about God. God is basically reduced to some genie who only exists to bless our country. All you ever hear politicians talk about God is, God bless America. Man, God's holy. He doesn't just bless. 
He also judges when they're trying to change how we think about God. Entertainment also tries to indoctrinate us into the values of our world. If you listen to pop music for 15 minutes, you'll learn that it's good to be drunk and that you only have value if you look hot and you have lots of premarital sex with lots of sexual partners. That's what the world's telling us through the radio. If you go to the movies or you watch TV, you'll learn that the average Christian is a hypocrite and that the Bible is a wicked and hateful book. Friends, our culture is whispering to us through all of these institutions and structures around us. The culture wants to conform us to its pattern. It wants us to reject Christianity or at least marginalize our faith to the point that our faith doesn't shape us, how, shape how we live anymore. It wants us to become just like unbelievers, to live like they do, to just endlessly pursue the sins of the flesh. It wants us to use other people to get ahead and to shamelessly seek whatever looks good or whatever feels good or whatever makes us feel important. And if you don't go along with this, then you'll be canceled. You'll be marginalized. You'll be written off and outcast as some sort of a fanatic or a nut. This is the world system trying to make us conform. A third way the world system attacks God's exiled people is it lures us in with the promise of vain luxury. These captives enjoyed luxury, the best food and wine. Our culture offers us the same sorts of things. Fit in, don't rock the boat, go along to get along, and the American dream can be yours. Mansions and sports cars and vacations, retirement at an early age, years of self-indulgent leisure. And you can even divorce your aging spouse and marry someone half your age. That's the so-called good life we see our celebrities living, that our society dangles in front of us. And friends, how often are Christians won over by these false promises? How quick we are sometimes to sell our principles and values for money. Often we're willing to just conform and fit in because that's easier than taking hard stands for Christ. We're often more interested in chasing this prize offered by the world rather than the prize which is offered by Christ to those who love him. Believing friends, make no mistake, this world wants to remake us. It offers us a new identity. It indoctrinates us through its institutions and it gives us financial incentives to indulge ourselves and to forget that we are exiles, that there is a new and better home awaiting us. So friends, be careful. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There is a war being fought for your soul. And our adversary, working through the culture, wants us to yield to the desires of our flesh, to forget holiness, and to conform to these things I've just described. So how are we to live? What are we to do? Well, our third point tells us. In exile, God's people must remember where their true allegiance lies. Babylonians had a plan for Daniel and his friends. How to make them stop being Jews and how to get them to start being Babylonians. They change their names and educate them in the wisdom of the Chaldeans and give them a luxurious diet of food and wine from the king's table. Well, how did Daniel and his friends respond? Well, Daniel and his friends endured the name change. They didn't resist. Their Babylonian names are used throughout this book without any suggestion that they resisted these names. The Babylonians tried to change their identities, and Daniel and his friends didn't raise a fuss. 
Why not? Because it doesn't matter what they call you if you remember in your heart who you truly are. And Daniel and his friends remembered that they were Jews who were to be loyal to the Lord. And that's how they lived, no matter what the Babylonians called them. And so the Babylonians' redefinition strategy failed. Because while they could change Daniel's name outwardly, they couldn't change his identity inwardly. Similarly, Daniel and his friends endured the Babylonian education, and they didn't resist that either. Now, this might really surprise us. In my youth pastor days, I knew a lot of families who probably would have assumed that Daniel and his friends would have gone to their graves as martyrs rather than submit to the secular education of Babylon. But that's not what happened. Daniel and his friends learned the Babylonian curriculum. Why? Because they recognized that this is where the Lord and his providence had put them. They were to become servants to Nebuchadnezzar. And if this education is what it took to fulfill that role the Lord had given them, they would do it. And so they studied the Chaldean literature and language. But while Daniel and his friends endured the indoctrination of Babylon, they did not internalize it. Intellectually, they learned the curriculum that was forced on them, but they weren't conformed to it. it they didn't let it change who they were. You say, well, how can that be? Because they had a personal faith that ran deeper than the lies of the world system. This is a vital truth that we all must remember about how we interact with the culture. Friends, our culture will whisper its lies to us. That is inevitable and unavoidable. And no matter how hard we may try to withdraw from this world, Unless we wind up living like medieval monks, spurning Christ's great commission, some degree of exposure to the world is inevitable. If not through entertainment, then through interpersonal relationships. It is simply impossible to avoid the world's influence. And that's a hard truth. And I would tell you this is a hard truth that is often learned with many tears. I've known families that thought that they could somehow avoid the world and, and by so doing keep their kids holy. And often what it generated was simply a veneer of holiness in their kids' lives that lasted until they went off to college. And then those kids encountered the world. And having never faced the temptation of the world before, these kids were left totally unprepared for how to handle the world's lies, and they fell catastrophically. Friends, withdrawing from the world is simply not a viable solution. So if we're going to encounter the world's lies, how can we then avoid conforming to them how can we avoid letting them alter us i would say by following daniel's example by having a deep personal faith a faith that sees the lord is more real and valuable to us than what the world is selling only a love for the lord will keep us close to him when our culture is lying to us about the joys of sin and i would tell you then that more than making the right school choice for your kids more than figuring out what forms of entertainment are okay. The number one thing that we each must cultivate individually and within our families is a deep and abiding personal faith in Jesus. Only that will protect us from the world's lies in the end. The desire to remain holy simply because we love Christ. That's what we need to cultivate. And that's what Daniel and his friends had. And so they endured the Babylonian education. They learned what they needed to learn. Now, that doesn't mean that they practice what they learned. In chapter 2, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream. And all these Babylonian magicians who've been trained in this same system, they've got one way to try to figure out what the dream is. 
But when Daniel tries to understand the dream, he doesn't use this approach. He doesn't use the wisdom of Babylon. Instead, he turns to the Lord and prays. Daniel and his friends learned what they had to learn to graduate, but they didn't let it destroy their faith or corrupt their lives. Their personal loyalty to God is what defeated the Babylonians' indoctrination strategy. But where Daniel and his friends did resist against the Babylonians was in the matter of the menu that they were served. They would not endure eating the food or drinking the wine from the king's table. And here Daniel shows himself to be the leader of these young men. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel would not take part in this meal. Why not? Well, it wasn't because Daniel was a vegan or a teetotaler. Later in this book, after experiencing a shocking event, Daniel says in chapter 10, verse 3, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Daniel says he wound up basically fasting from his normal diet, which included delicacies, meat, and wine. So the issue here is not that Daniel is averse to meat and wine. All right, well, what then is the problem? Well, verse 8 says that the menu he was offered was defiling. This verb is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to speak of food that was ceremonially unclean or that contained blood. You might remember that the Mosaic law regulated what sorts of animals the Israelites were allowed to eat. And no matter what, Israelites were never to eat meat that had not been drained of its blood. And so perhaps that's the issue. The food from the king's table violates Israel's dietary laws. And yet none of the dietary laws say anything about wine. So I think there's another issue at play here as well. And I think we get the answer to this in chapter 5. Chapter 5, we see a later ruler of Babylon celebrating a feast. And at this feast, we read in chapter 5, verse 4, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I think Daniel's objection was not simply that the meat was not kosher. But more than that, the food and wine had been offered to the idols of Babylon. And Daniel would not consume food or drink that were offered to idols. Because Daniel knew the principle that the Apostle Paul would later write down in 1 Corinthians 10. That what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. To participate in a feast devoted to idols was to worship demons. And Daniel, who loved the Lord, could not do that. So what does he do? Well, he acts to preserve his holiness and his distinction from the world. He acts based on his conviction. And notice how Daniel acts. You know, these days it seems that many Christians are regularly looking for a justification to just get angry and to participate in some public demonstration asserting how we are being victimized and to take some kind of dramatic stand for our rights. But Daniel doesn't go on a publicized hunger strike. He doesn't make a scene. He doesn't throw his wine at someone and say, you can't make me drink that. He doesn't sue everybody. Instead, look at the respectful and honorable way that Daniel handles this. Daniel 1.8. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel went to Ashpenaz and he explained the situation to him. He didn't make a spectacle. He didn't do anything that would bring disrepute to the Lord who he was seeking to honor. 
Daniel had a conviction and he acted upon it in a respectful way because he wasn't concerned about public opinion or becoming a celebrated cause or getting on the evening news and going viral. He wasn't trying to make a statement. He was just trying to be faithful to God. And so often I think we've forgotten that's what we're called to do. And so he respectfully speaks to Ashpenaz, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now, Ashpenaz could have heard Daniel out and gotten quite angry. After all, turning down the provision from the table of the king of the mightiest empire of the world might sound disloyal or uh, filled with ingratitude. Ashpenaz could have caused Daniel a lot of trouble. But that doesn't happen because God honors Daniel's commitment and his faithfulness. God ensures that Ashpenaz gives Daniel a fair hearing. But for his part, Ashpenaz is afraid. Being the, the chief eunuch of the king was a position of great trust. If he betrayed that trust, he would not only lose his position, he would lose his life because there's no point in keeping untrustworthy servants around. So Ashpenaz doesn't want to do anything to endanger his position or his head. And he thinks Daniel's proposal is a little risky. If Daniel and his friends stop eating the king's food, they might start looking weak and frail compared to the rest of the youths in this program who are eating the king's food. And then there's going to be an inquiry. Why does Daniel and his buddies look, look a lot worse than everybody else? And then Ashpenaz, who has been tasked with giving these young people what they need, will have to explain why he let Daniel and his friends opt out of the king's menu. And he's worried where that inquiry is going to lead. And so while Ashpenaz is kind enough to listen to Daniel, he isn't bold enough to go along with Daniel's suggestion. And yet, Ashpenaz doesn't really say no either. Daniel doesn't really get a clear answer, but he's undeterred. So now he approaches another official, the steward who is most immediately over him and his friends, an underling of Ashpenaz. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel's learned from his conversation with Ashpenaz. And here we see some of Daniel's famous wisdom. This time he offers a very specific proposal a diet of vegetables and water for a limited period of time, just 10 days. 10 days would be long enough to see if there was any kind of alteration in their appearance because of this dietary change. But 10 days was also a short enough period to probably not cause a dramatic alteration for the worse. There would be no inquiry and beheadings if Daniel's plan didn't go the way that he expected that it would. Verse 14, so the steward listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Daniel and his friends get the 10-day period to eat only vegetables and water. Now, what should we take from this? What I want you to see here is how serious Daniel was about being faithful to the Lord. A lot of young Jewish men were taken captive to Babylon, but only four of them made this stand. The rest just fit right into the Babylonian system. They didn't care that the food wasn't kosher or that it had been offered to idols. They ate and drank contentedly. They probably rationalized their actions. You know, well, this is just how it is, and I've got to get over it. I'm not willing to lose my head over this. And so having satiated their conscience through rationalization, they defiled themselves with unclean food and became participants with demons. But 
for his part, Daniel patiently endured what he was able to endure. He saw no reason to raise a fuss over the name change or his education. He put into practice what the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He bore the indignity of the name change of the goal of the Babylonian education patiently. He went along with what was up, asked of him up to a point. And that point was when he was required to actually do something that was sinful, that was contrary to God's word, to eat food that he could not in good conscience eat. And only at that point of being asked to sin did he then take the stand that the apostles took in Acts 5.29, when they said, we must obey God rather than men. And in his stand, in his act of obedience, Daniel was totally uncompromising. He didn't try to find a way to rationalize eating the food. He didn't try to find a middle path. Oh, we'll, we'll drink the wine only, but we won't eat the food. Or we'll eat the king's menu every other day. No, no, no. Daniel said, I can't do it at all. And he stuck to his stand and he acted on it. He went to Ashpenaz. And when he didn't get satisfaction, he went to the steward who he thought could accommodate him. And in the way he handled himself in this, Daniel is a model to us, a model that shows us first that we don't have to fight a culture war over everything that happens around us, which we don't like. But he's also a model who shows us that when we're being required to sin by our culture or by our government or our boss, then we should resist. And he shows us how to resist by being firm and honest, not making up fake reasons about why we can't participate in sinful behavior, but being clear about what our faith is and what it requires. He is respectful. Friends, resistance is not a justification to act like a jerk. And he's uncompromising. Friends, if something is impermissible, don't mess around with it. Don't try to create half measures that allow for partial participation. Abstain altogether from evil. And that's what Daniel did. And how did it turn out? Well, that's what we see in our fourth point. God sustains his people in exile. For ten days, Daniel and his friends abstained from the king's food and wine. They ate the vegetables and they drank water. And how did it turn out? In Daniel 1.15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And Daniel and his friends didn't look weak like Ashkenaz had feared. Instead, they looked stronger and better than the other youths in the program. And so Daniel and his friends were allowed to continue eating vegetables and drinking water. They were not required to violate their consciences. Well, what's the application here? Well, I'll tell you first, that unlike recent books that have been published on this chapter, I would tell you that Daniel 1 is not about establishing a fad diet. Vegetables and water only for healthy bodies. No, 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 that's not it at all. After all, later in this book, Daniel's again eating meat and drinking wine in moderation. All right, well, what then is the application? Friends, God is with his people in their exile. And despite the difficulties of being strangers in a strange land, we are not abandoned here without help. The Lord is with us. And one way that the Lord is with us is something we find in 1 Corinthians 10. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful to us, friends, and he will never put us in a situation in which our only choice is sin. He will always ensure that there is a way of escape. I think Daniel knew this instinctively. 
That's why when his only dietary option was sinful, he said to the steward, give us 10 days of a different diet and let's see what happens. Because he was confident that the Lord was not going to abandon him to a situation where his only choice was sin. Friends, God will always give us a way out. And God will honor and reward those who seek to be faithful to him. Now, we may not see those rewards in this life. We may, but if we don't, we'll see them in eternity. But know this, Hebrews 11:6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God wants us to live by faith and to be faithful to him. And that's what Daniel and his friends did here. The Lord honored their faith and faithfulness. Now, today we're not under the Jewish dietary law, but God still honors his people when they take a step of faith like this. I tell you, I've lived it by God's grace. About five years ago, I concluded that I needed to resign from my job for biblical reasons. And at the time, I had no job prospects and no idea what I was going to do. And my wife and I prayed about it. And we were convinced that the only recourse, the only way of escape that God had provided for us to avoid sin was for me to resign. And so we took a huge step of faith. And God answered our faith with provision, with a new position and a new church family. God honored our faith and our desire to be faithful. And for that, I praise him. And I would encourage you today, friends, if you find yourself in a similar situation, feeling pressure to sin by an employer or a relationship. Trust the Lord. Look for the way of escape and don't sin. Trust God. Pray and know that he is with you and he will honor your attempts to honor him. And so Daniel and his friends were allowed to eat a diet that allowed them to maintain their holiness as Jews. And they were able to continue their studies. And in time they graduated and took up positions as officials of Babylon. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them there was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. God greatly gifted Daniel and his friends. God gave all four of these youths immense wisdom and learning. They didn't simply learn the Babylonian curriculum and follow it. They received a supernatural endowment of knowledge from God so that the king came to rely upon their counsel even more than upon the counsel of the Chaldean magicians and sages. And that's not surprising, because the wisdom of God is better than the wisdom of this world. More than that, Daniel received a further gift from God. He received the gift to be able to interpret visions and dreams. We'll see this in action next week. But what I want us to see here is that these exiled youths did not compromise. They did not conform themselves to the world's pattern. When they were going to be forced to sin, they resisted, and the Lord honored their stand of faith. And he not only met their needs, he rewarded them for their faithfulness. And friends, we can trust that this same God will respond to us as we try to live for him in our exile in the same way. He'll be with us, he'll help us, he'll deliver us from temptation, and he will reward us as we seek to honor him. And not only that, 
but one day he will bring us through this exile. And that's our final point today. God brings his people through exile. That's what the final verse of this chapter gets at. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And Babylonians thought they were invincible. That their army was like a god. That their god was stronger than the Lord. But as God had declared about Babylon through the prophet Habakkuk, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. And indeed that happened during Daniel's life. As a young man, he went captive to Babylon. As an old man, he watched God bring Babylon down as Babylon fell to the, the Persians and the Medes. And Daniel lived to see the reign of King Cyrus, the Persian king who allowed the Jews to return to the promised land. God brought Daniel through the exile. And friends, God will bring us through the exile in which we find ourselves to. One day, we will be no longer bound to this evil and fallen world. One day the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. One day the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. One day, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. One day, brothers and sisters, we will be well and truly home. And so to conclude, for now we are in exile. For now the world wants to break us and to conform us to its pattern. For now we must be faithful to the Lord. For now we must look to the Lord to sustain us in this exile in which we find ourselves. But one day we will be delivered from exile and we will be brought home. This world wants us to conform. But instead let us cultivate a deep personal faith and love for Jesus Christ. A faith that is willing to patiently endure the truth that we are in exile. And that sometimes we must submit to governing authorities that we do not agree with. A faith that is also willing to resist when our state or our employer requires us to sin. Romans 12.2, I think, is a good place to finish this up. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, devoting our minds to God's word will, gu will guard us against the world's lies. Learning God's word will show us how to live and how to navigate the challenges of exile. So I want to finish by encouraging you to spend time in God's word this week and let it transform you. And do not be conformed. For Ionesco was wrong. Woe will not befall the man who does not conform. But woe betide the Christian who conforms to this world.